0: Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes but graduated as blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Psyche Williams-Forson. She is professor and chair of the Department of American Studies at the University of Maryland, College Park. Her book is titled Eating While Black, Food Shaming and Race in America. She illustrates how anti-black racism operates in the practice and culture of eating. Black people's relationships to food have historically been connected to extreme forms of control and scarcity, as well as to stunning creativity and ingenuity. In advancing dialogue about eating and race, she urges us to think and talk about food in new ways in order to improve American society on both personal and structural levels. I'm joined by 15 of my Harvard classmates. Jeff. Oh, yeah, hi. Uh, well, I'm the, the the outlier. I'm living in Spain, southern Spain, and uh, currently writing fiction. I used I used to teach sociology, but now I'm writing fiction.
1: Bill Collins live in Aiken, South Carolina. Harvard '63, white Irish Catholic.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's and I'm Anne Huberman, class of '63, uh, living in Peterborough, New Hampshire. Retired librarian and climate activist.
3: I'm Peter DeLisavoy, and i I live up in the northern tip of New Hampshire, near the Canadian border, where the where the where the food is very bland, extremely bland and uninteresting. Uh, after After Harvard, I worked with Snick in in South Georgia for two, two and a half years, and we we were we were uh, a very subsistence living bunch, but we got fed in two ways. Basically, one was a local white grocery store was hedging its bets, and it would send over uh, canned goods that had either been dented or usually had lost their labels, so that opening a can was always uh, an adventure you know and you're hoping not for butter beans but for for spaghetti or whatever the other way we ate was that the the local people uh, some of whom had no intention of going to jail themselves uh, fed us uh, uh, and uh, so two or three nights a week I would eat dinner uh, particularly at one deacon and, and his family's house. And then we ate very well. That was a big treat. And uh, I remember really good cornbread and local fish and black eyed peas. And I, I learned how to prepare greens, pick and clean greens for, for dinner there too. And then when I li- and sweet potato pie as a Northern, I'd never heard of that before, and grits. And then when I then when I lived in Los Angeles, uh, there was a place, I believe it was called Roscoe's, anyway, it was chicken and waffles, and I had never known about eating chicken and waffles, but I'm telling you, that's a terrific breakfast.
4: Uh, I'm Mason Morfitt, I uh, live in Maine, but I'm currently in Florida. Unfortunately, I forgot to have breakfast, so I'm I'm very hungry and wish I could report that I'm eating wild white, but uh Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um
5: uh, I grew up eating wild wasp. Uh my, my father was very rigid around uh food. My mother was more adventurous and um uh I live in Nashville. I'm I I'm functioning as, as a psychologist, more or less,
6: Do uh Jerry, you're next. Uh, good morning or good afternoon. So I, I grew up in uh, the black part of D.C. Oh. on collard greens, mustard greens, turnip greens, and I hate them. So <laughs> that's all I can say. I'm glad I don't have to eat those anymore. So I'm an environmental lawyer, spent time with the Department of Justice, Peace Corps, oil companies and nonprofits. <laughs>
2: okay, Marcy. I run Clean Air Campaign and its Open Rivers Project in New York City, which, among other things, tries to preserve the habitats that sustain
1: wild fisheries, including for subsistence subsistence
2: fishers.
3: Okay. John. (laughs) Hi. uh, John Woodford in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I've been uh, writing and editing since 1977, but before that, I was in Chicago and uh, New York. But I grew up in Benton Harbor, Michigan. And uh, I must say, unlike Jerry, I love all kinds of greens: collard, mustard, turnip. And I grow them and I eat them. I eat a lot of, I, like, I eat too much of a lot of good things.
7: <laughs> Doug. Uh-huh. Hi, I'm Doug Shapiro, uh, living in Louisville, Kentucky. I retired from uh, Janssen uh, uh, Research and Development, which is a, a big uh, research part of uh, 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 Johnson & Johnson Pharmaceutical Company, although I did not share uh, many of the corporation attitudes about all kinds of things, uh, which is one of the reasons I left after only 10 years, um, Anyway, uh, I'm happy to be here. I've uh, been participating in these LNAH uh, Zooms for well over a year now and getting, I think, uh, quite nicely uh, updated in my attitudes about race and all things having to do with that in America. Okay, Nick.
4: Nick Bancroft, um, class of 1963, Harvard, uh, and then business school, and um, two years in the Peace Corps in India with all sorts of. different cuisines as you might imagine Uh, (laughs) what struck me um one short story was what struck me was the um feelings between the north and the south of india for how to eat and the north of india you are allowed you of course you're eating with your hands in the north of india you're allowed to going from your finger tip finger down you're allowed two joints to work work your fingers with, and <laughs> it's impolite to go down below the two joints. Go to South India, and they eat with their whole hand, and they, as they go, the, the Northern Indians <clears throat> say, oh, those Southerners, gee, they are so sloppy. They have no idea of politeness, and the Southerners talk about the Northerners, and they say, All those Northerners, they're so uptight, they can't really appreciate anything about eating. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. David. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) David Offmer, grew up in South America, been in public television most of my life, but just speaking of greens, just came from an exhibit of Modigliani. A lot of greens, a lot of reds, a lot of blues. A uh, fantastic exhibit. Unfortunately, it's closing on Sunday. I, I would urge you all to come and <laughs> uh, see the exhibit here in Philadelphia. Ah,
2: okay. Susan. Susan Swanton, Rochester, New York, class of 63, retired library director, now uh, knee-deep and neck-deep into local politics. I want to know how the British ever lived because my father loved creamed codfish and creamed chip beef on whatever. <laughs> I mean, how did they live with all that horrible food?
6: <laughs> <laughs> hey, Spencer. Yes. Uh, a goosey and and okra soup. Uh, fufu. For eating with the hands, yes, and with the uh, uh, greens, yeah, uh, collards, collard greens, or dino kale, all will go into the soup. My name is Spencer Jourdain. I really like this topic, obviously, and uh, I'm Harvard61, and uh, glad to be here.
0: Okay, and uh, George, Alan. Hi, I'm George Allen. I uh, am class of
5: 63. I live uh, in Los Angeles and uh, uh, practice law part of the time.
0: Okay, and Professor, thank you for coming. Welcome and uh, tell us about your life and about the book and how you came to write it.
2: Great, thank you all so much for having me this afternoon and for introducing yourselves. I'm looking forward to a great conversation. So I'm Psyche Williams Forsen, and I am a professor, full professor. Um, I was promoted last year, so finally made it to the top of that (laughs) pinnacle, if you will. Um, Full professor and department chair of American (laughs) Studies here at the University of Maryland in College Park, and so we're right here in the DMV, for those of you who mentioned being in the area. Um, I have been at the University of Maryland since 2005. And I have been studying food cultures since 1991, when I entered graduate school for my MA, um, and have built a subfield um, in Black food studies. Um, Because when I went to graduate school, food studies was just getting started, but it was considered very much lightened scholarship. It was because, you know, it was associated with HOMAC and and, uh, those sort of unimportant disciplines. Um, But we have over time illustrated why um, food studies is an important area for all of us to be concerned with. So I've been doing that since 2000 since 1991 and my first book was building houses out of chicken legs black women food and power which i wrote back in 2002 which was my um, doctoral thesis Um, and then i wrote another book in the interim um, um, taking food public redefining food ways in a changing world and then in august Eating While Black was released. And so I'm excited to talk with you all today about why I wrote this book.
3: Okay. What what was the Chicken Legs title?
2: Uh Uh-huh. Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women, Uh. Food, and Power. So I'll tell you the story there, which ties into this book. When I was working on my doctoral thesis, um, Three things happen. First, Tiger Woods won the Masters Golf Tournament, right, back in 99. And apparently when you win the Masters, in addition to the coveted green jacket, you get to decide what you want for your celebratory dinner. So one of the, his fellow golfers, Fuzzy Zeller, told him, um, don't order fried chicken and collard greens or whatever the hell you people eat. <laughs> and so Fuzzy, I don't know if you all remember that, but Fuzzy Zeller received a lot of backlash as a result of that comment. And the other thing that happened, which is something I saw this year as well, for Martin Luther King's um, birthday, um, several fraternities in the South um, decided to have a uh, party and they advertised the party with Martin Luther King holding a 40 ounce of beer and a bucket of chicken. So I began to ask myself, because now we're at the turn of last century, uh, turn of this century. And I said, are black people still being associated with the stereotype of chicken and watermelon? Because it's an enduring stereotype. So I started out my doctoral thesis research uh, studying the stereotype. So this was before Google. It was, we just had the internet at that time. So I went onto the internet and I typed in black people in chicken and I got all of these images, um, some really um, problematic images of, of black men and women stealing. Um, you get pictures of Aunt Jemima, you get, there's a ton and, and a lot of them are in my first book
0: so that brought you to eating while black how did you get that brought
2: me to eating while black because i wanted to give a moment if anybody else had any questions but um because as i when that book came out i had the fortunate good fortune of, of touring the country and speaking and while i was doing that um a lot of changes were happening in the food world two decades ago right so Dollar stores started to get refrigeration. More and more people were talking about growing their own food. You know, we were in the middle of another sort of food revolution, right? Where everything became eat local, eat fresh, eat this. Eat there was more conversation around the environment and and the climate. So a lot of changes started happening, and that was great. But people who would talk with me usually would have an air of I'm better than someone else because they eat at McDonald's or they don't eat healthy or they don't eat local or they don't eat any of these things that we're being told we're supposed to eat. Um, Everyone wanted to label themselves, right? I'm a pescatarian, I'm a vegetarian, I'm a vegan, so forth and so on. So what I found in my uh, 10 years of travel were that people inadvertently were shaming other people um and soul food and southern food caught it the most um and black people caught it the most um for having these abhorrent um unhealthy diets when the reality is most every culture has foods that are not uh healthy if you want to think about it in the st- from the standpoint of cooking with oil or using different kinds of ingredients that aren't naturally, that aren't farm to table, if you will. Um, And so, you know, I wrote this book uh, to talk about that. And now let me tell you about the title because that wasn't, it wasn't a title that I came up with. Um, There's a, he's now writing for the Washington Post, but he used to write for another entity and it's a man by the name of Damon Young. And he had a blog and he laid out his thoughts in an article titled, Perfectly Normal Things Black Men Do, Um, Black Men Know Not to Do Just Because America Is Racist As F. And the article lists 10 actions that African-Americans are careful not to do for fear of reprisal and shame. Things like assisting random white women in public, or jogging at night, (laughs) getting angry at work. He includes all of these. Number eight on his list that Black men and women know not to do in public is eat chicken and or watermelon at the office potluck and or barbecue. And he says, (laughs) which sucks. Yeah. Right, right. He says, which sucks because everyone loves watermelon, and there's nothing worse than loving watermelon but feeling a certain way about showing your love of watermelon because you know everyone assumes you love watermelon. There's which nothing sucks.
3: worse than not eating watermelon because you think someone else is going to look at you. That's right.
2: exactly his point.
3: <laughs> Go ahead and eat it, right?
2: And so, but if you, if I looked at the comments to that article, and almost mm-hmm. all African Americans or people who uh, self-identify as African-American in the comments said that they (laughs) totally knew that eating chicken and watermelon publicly could result in their being shamed, okay? Um, And so the Association of African-American People, um, and especially in this image, um, in this issue, Damon Young used the picture (laughs) of the then president of the United States, who was Barack Obama, And he had a picture of uh, President Obama eating a piece of chicken. And so it said, the Association of African American People, and especially the President of the United States with foods like chicken, is so incendiary that ultimately Damon Young moved that picture off his blog, right? And so um, he says, though he 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 has replaced the image, if you were to look for the blog, he says, we're all aware of the potential criminality of caught driving while Black and shopping while Black and walking while Black and, and walking with your hands in your pockets while Black and waiting for a bus while Black and sitting while Black and eating while Black and tipping while Black. And and then he says, and you get the point. So that's where the title of this book comes from um, because he's talking about these transgressions that Black people... In America, recognize can get them shamed for just doing everyday acts um, that everyone else does. And so that's where the title of this book comes from. And I tell a number of different stories of my experiences traveling throughout the US, of instances where eating um where black people are essentially shamed for just doing the very normal thing of eating. So that's what this new book is about. Um, The last chapter in particular, I talk about, um, I just finished a podcast this morning where I was explaining that we hear a lot about food justice. That's something we talk a lot about in in food studies. And that's making sure that everyone has equitable access, the ability to eat the foods that they want to eat. And one of the things that I shared is that um, we all eat right? And we have lots of wonderful people out there working to change climate, working to change environmental injustice, and so forth. But we have to be careful about taking on these crusades in communities where we think people need help, but the people themselves do not, right? Um, And while we're working to change all these systems, how do people access food? how do people access food? And I came to this because I did a a talk up at Mount Holyoke. And um, one of the panelists who I was with talked about working in a community center where she deals with folks who are trying to age in place. And what she found was that oftentimes her clients would not take their medications because they didn't have access to food. And so my students um, I teach a course um, called Food Trauma and Sustainability. So my students worked with Meals on Wheels and we found overwhelmingly this whole idea that people have to eat. We have to find ways to be okay for people to eat in the meantime. A lot of aging populations, um, the only time that they even see someone else. So as from a social standpoint, was when Meals on Wheels would deliver their food. And I started seeing this phenomenon um, in my own family, um, where oftentimes my mom would not eat um, because no one else was in the household with her. You know, my sisters and niece and nephews are all out doing their own thing. So, you know, that's one of the things that I talk about is that we have to stop shaming people around where they access food and how they access food because how they do this is is uh, important, and often it may be that the only people they see are the folks in the grocery store or in the dollar store, or wherever it is that they're able to to get food from. Mm-hmm. Well, that's some of the things I talk about in eating wild black. Okay. Doug, <clears throat> um, y- yes,
7: uh, I was struck by the fact that. Uh, All of the images that you showed uh, about uh, Black food uh, focused on chickens. Uh, I grew up in a very, very highly segregated Houston uh, way back when. uh, As an indication that in my entire first 18 years of life, I knew exactly one Black guy. uh, And he was someone in the neighborhood who came out and played sandlot football with uh, the rest of the kids in the neighborhood, all of whom were white. The one part in Houston that seemed to escape this uh, uh, high degree of segregation was a place called Matt Garner's Barbecue, and Matt Garner was a, a kind of an older black man, and somehow he made the best barbecue in town, and everyone who lived in Houston and liked barbecue would always go there, and the people who went to these fast food barbecue places were people who really didn't know where to go for really outstanding barbecue. So, I'm, I'm wondering if you would just comment on uh, whether barbecue has held any particular uh, place in uh, Southern Black culture or whether my experience with uh, Matt Garner in, in Texas was uh, atypical.
2: Yeah, thank you for that question. No, I mean, you know, building houses out of chicken legs is, is relatively regional. In that, um, it, though it's it, it encompassed the entire United States, um, toward the there are parts of the book that really talk about the Eastern Seaboard. Your experiences are are spot on, um, but beef did not conjure up the same types of vitriol, if you will, that chicken did. And I'll tell you why. In in Building Houses, I trace this phenomenon of associating Black people with chicken um, back to the 1600s. And um, you, you have to think that I'm talking here not about the chicken that we have today, but I'm talking about guinea fowl and yard bird, right? Which made chicken chickens and and fowl subject to a lot of legal statutes. You can't you can't kidnap a cow like you can take a chicken. Right? Mm-hmm. So oftentimes in the 1600s black folks were accused of stealing um you know white uh white people's chicken and and other kinds of yard animals. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons that chicken has this enduring racialized, um, association in ways that barbecue does not. Now there's a, there are several raging conversations on Facebook right now around who contributed the knowledge of barbecue, of, of cooking barbecue, um, beef or pork. Um, and you know, I leave that to the, to the sort of barbecue experts to have that conversation but there's several folks out there who have covered um one a scholar out of the uk by the name of andrew Warnes w-a-r-n-e-s and um he has written a book uh about barbecue savage barbecue is the name of the book which might be of interest to you. then uh, adrian miller who's out of denver uh, he has written extensively on this. And then another um, pit master has, has taken up this conversation, Dr. Howard Conyers, who's also at NASA, um, but is has comes from a family of pit masters. And so he has his own take. So there are lots of conversations right now floating around um, the culture of barbecue, but it does not have the same stigma attached to it as chicken and watermelon for for Black people.
4: I'd like to ask about cornbread. Mm-hmm. I had a time a long time ago taking a daughter who was at boarding school with her roommate, and a lot of the roommates' aunties who had come in from Chicago, South Chicago, mm-hmm. I took took them all to a, a restaurant in Boston called Durgan Park. Mm-hmm. Durgan Park was famous a place to eat. No longer. Existing, but sawdust on the floor, great roast beef, cornbread, Mm -hmm. uh, strawberry shortcake, all that kind of stuff. So uh, everybody's sitting down. There are probably 12 of us all together. And uh, I gave them a pitch. And then uh, the uh, cornbread came and passed around. And I'd given a big pitch for cornbread. Mm -hmm. Looked around the table. Nobody uh, outside of my family was eating the cornbread.
2: Oh, okay.
4: And I said, um, hmm, um, what's the matter with the cornbread? <laughs> Something subtle like that.
0: Yeah.
4: And uh, <clears throat> they they looked at each other, and then one of them was selected, obviously, with a glance, and they said, <clears throat> well, the cornbread is yellow cornmeal. Um, we only eat white cornmeal. Uh, yeah. And we... Yeah. We send the yellow cornmeal to the hogs to
2: the hogs, yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: well, hey, uh, I learned something, yeah <laughs> how does everybody know that?
2: Well, I mean, that's an interesting story, first of all, because um again, you're talking about a regional variation, because yeah. a lot of people don't eat cornbread, have never eaten cornbread, don't don't know what cornbread is. Um, and now I'll tell you this story from my colleague, Elizabeth Inglehart, who talks about, um, who looks at Appalachian foodways. And she talks about, in her book, a Mess of Greens, um, there's a story in there where she explains that during the, I think, 1930s, 1940s, reformers came into Appalachia and declared cornbread to be dirty.
6: Hmm. Okay.
2: Um, in part because it's so similar to hoe cake, um, which oftentimes was cooked on a hoe, right? You could just mm. put the mix your meal and put it on a hoe and it cooks in the sun while you're while you're working. Uh, so these reformers said, Hey, you know, from a standpoint of hygiene, cornbread is not nutritious, it's not healthy, it's not this, that, and the other. What you need to make are biscuits. <laughs> So they began to give them the ingredients for biscuits and the process of making biscuits. And it was so labor intensive that for these working class people in in Appalachia, it was not sustainable, right? And so this is an example of how you can have the best intent in your efforts and totally missed the mark because you haven't taken into consideration people's everyday lives, and so growing up for me, the difference in the yellow and the white cornbread was that in in I'm from rural Virginia, and uh, but I grew up in Buffalo, where my mom introduced us to jiffy cornbread, right, mm-hmm. but every now and then she would also make white meal cornbread if we didn't have the jiffy, or she'd mix the two, but oftentimes, when I would go home to uh to Farmville Virginia and especially when I would go to Cumberland you know my relatives there just used the meal they didn't use the box Ah. they used the ground meal Mm -hmm. and and that's when they made the 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 white cornbread and it was also not sweet Ah. that cornbread was cooked in a skillet and it was and it was often cooked for breakfast and with maybe some um you know uh apples you know uh stewed down apples and tomatoes separate not combined um and uh strychline or or fatback or what have you and maybe some eggs and that was that was breakfast but it was most often it was white cornmeal
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh george <laughs>
3: Can you hear me now?
2: Yes. 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 Okay. Talk
3: about his white cornmeal.
5: Exactly. So I make a dish called hot water cornbread. The recipe yes. for which I learned from my mother, who learned it from her mother, yes. who may well have learned it from her, her mother.
2: Probably. Mm-hmm.
5: You can make it with yellow cornmeal, but if you do, it's nasty.
2: Mm. You can only
5: make it correctly from it white white
2: cornmeal. Well, <laughs> uh. let, let me ask you this: Do you know how to also make spoon bread?
5: Yeah. No, I don't.
2: Okay. You know what? I yeah, spoon bread. My mom used to make it, but she can't remember how she did no. it. Does it, anybody know no. how to make spoon bread? It was cooked in the skillet, just like cornbread. Yeah. But it was soft. Uh, it has Tennessee. soft consistency in the middle.
1: I, my
3: friend from Tennessee makes spoon bread.
2: Oh. He's a t- white guy
3: from Tennessee, yeah. but they make well, spoon bread.
2: Well, here's the thing, though, right? Most of the time... Most, in, most black people came into the United States by way of the South, right? So when you say he's a white guy from Tennessee, the foods that white Southerners cooked and that black people in the South cooked and, and ate as well are often yeah. very similar.
3: Yeah. Right.
6: Yeah,
2: because we, it's a regional, because region makes a big mm-hmm. difference, right? Right. Um, so when mm-hmm. we get caught up on race, where we get caught up on race and, and, and certainly understand why, region has a lot more to do with food than anything else. Even though they're in the South, Louisianans don't necessarily eat the same foods as Mississippians or as Texans or as mm-hmm. those on the South Carolina seaboard or the Gullah people, for example. Right. Even though rice may be consistent among those cultures, how it's cooked, the ingredients that are used. I think New Orleans is, uh, and Louisiana are some of the only ones who rely heavily upon the Holy Trinity of uh, celery, onion and green pepper. Mm. Most folks will use green pepper and onion, but not add celery. But that's a staple it's called the Holy Trinity. Right. So when we talk about food cultures, regions make a huge difference. It's why you can go to Chicago and see similar foods that were eaten in Mississippi, especially oh, yeah. among black people because of the migration pattern. So when we talk about going to Chicago and having catfish and coleslaw and spaghetti mm-hmm. and people are like that combination doesn't go together. But if you're from Mississippi, you understand that it's the difference between catfish and in, in uh, Chicago and walleye in, in Miss Minnesota, right? Region makes a difference. Uh, mm-hmm. Or eating clams and, and crabs along the Eastern seaboard, which is where we are, or Texas in barbecue, a barbecue in Texas. So, you know, all of these, there are so many different variations of food that we need to uh, rely upon that soul food is not just the only only one that folks should be thinking about. Mm-hmm.
1: Bill. Yes, I was going to say, I, I mentioned that I'm an Irish Catholic from Boston, but I've been all over the world. I was in the Navy 20 years and ate all kinds of food and I've traveled <clears up throat> there on business and pleasure and so on. And I've eaten all kinds of foods, mm-hmm. all kinds of places in the world. And I've never met a food I didn't like, which is a problem for my waistline. <laughs> but, but at any rate, cornbread, it's kind of interesting my i grew up in boston and my mother prepared cornbread a lot it was yellow cornbread it was very good and i used to eat in durgan parks back in the day and sure Mm -hmm. enough cornbread and roast beef and strawberry shortcake and all that stuff and uh here in the south i live in aiken south carolina we just had a had a dinner at this club i belong to and lo and behold there was cornbread yellow cornbread Mm -hmm. it's curious i i um and some people don't like it, I know that. And uh, but anyway, it's it's what you say about regional variation is certainly true. I mean, you go to an you go to Turkey, for example, eat eat Turkish food, and you eat with your fingers, you have to use your right hand. If you use your other hand, you're in serious trouble.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, let me ask you: was the cornbread sweet? Because unlike what Mr. Jones said, you know, real cornbread for a lot of people, it's almost like eating grits with sugar it ah, yeah. gets with black with pepper and salt
1: yeah i know this was sweet the yellow yeah. cornbread was sweet now i i sweet. got introduced to sweet. grits in the navy mm-hmm. and i got mm-hmm. to find that man grits and eggs and all that stuff was great mm-hmm. together
2: mm-hmm. but but you, here again you've got folks who who are like what is a grit what, what yeah, is yeah it? i don't even like the sound of it but you know <laughs> but um like i said we grew up for us sweet cornbread is jiffy mixed Non-sweet mm-hmm. cornbread is white cornmeal, mm-hmm. you know. So it's not supposed to be sweet. I, w- I, w- it would be weird for me to eat white cornbread with that sweet. You know. Yeah, that's interesting. No, my mother,
1: my mother used to use cornmeal. She'd buy a box mm-hmm. of or the and
2: yellow sugar. cornmeal, yellow yeah. cornmeal, yeah. and she'd mm-hmm. make
1: that. Yeah. Yes, sure.
2: yes, yes, of course.
6: Jerry, well, I have to go back to greens, and I still have nightmares <laughs> every now and then about that. <laughs> <laughs> Because every single dinner, we seem to have greens. And I would ask my mother, what's wrong with broccoli? What's wrong with sweet? <laughs> I do have these greens all the time. And I grew up quite poor in D.C. And my really the question is, was it a cultural thing for my mother? Or was it simply because it was cheap?
2: Well, that's a good question. There's a wonderful book called Alley Life in Washington, D.C. Um, and it talks about the 30s, 40s, and 50s the ways that um black um black and white folks who were on the poor side of town um ate. Uh he has he has he talks about alley they lived in alleys right and so one of the things is that yes both both points it's a regional um, food greens in this area collard greens mustard greens turnip greens so forth and remember a lot of these greens grew wild so Ah. you could pick them for example uh, again being in rural Virginia um I would watch my cousin who lived across the street from me go into the wooded lot next door to her house and come back out maybe 45 minutes later with a full bag of what was poke salad she had gone and picked it right out of the and she would tell me she's like but you have to know how to cook it because if you don't cook poke salad correctly it could kill you right but but i that was fascinating to me that she could go in and ad, identify poke salad or weed right poke weed um and she could she could cook it so it was a little bit of both it was a, it was a food of convenience it was it's you know leaves if you go into the grocery store right now and you buy cabbage a lot of grocery stores will peel off all the outer leaves and toss them wow. as opposed to recognizing not only the nutritional value but the fact that that's part of I mix a lot of times I will just go and get the leaves cut it up and cook it with my collard greens because they have a similar texture. Right, so it was a little bit of both. And Alley Life, um, Alan Borshert's work in Alley Life in Washington D.C. will probably shed some light on that for
4: you. Thank you.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah. yeah uh- <clears throat> I'm interested as a psychologist. I'm interested in the internalization of shame and how you deal with it, mm-hmm. and uh, um, you know, and your your descriptions of uh, black people earlier eating uh, chicken and stuff, and, and the uh, stereotype that uh, they face, mm-hmm. and uh, there's there's a lot of young women uh, with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. and 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 that probably ties in and i'm just wondering how how people move beyond uh like if if you're black and you see the prejudice against chicken and watermelon as coming from the dominant culture uh uh i can see how if you eat with your fellows that 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 uh uh you've you've escaped some of that uh, a lot of that shame and we can enjoy it and be ourselves uh but there's the there's the internalization issues for a variety of people in a variety of situations and i'm just wondering how how you see people moving beyond that of of whatever race and how.
2: right great um so two things yes shaming people has no value whatsoever as as many studies have have shared and i i gave this talk in one of its very early stages and a a psychiatrist came up to me afterward and he said i have found that that shaming does not change behavior and he was talking then about smoking and and other uh activities that you know needed cessation but um so I'll say this very quickly. Black people in America have come through centuries of sh- of trauma from enslavement onward. And though not all of us were enslaved, most of our ancestors were. And so you've got centuries of enslavement and centuries of trauma to accommodate that. And that trauma has continued with shame um, around farming, around eating certain foods. I did focus groups in my first book, and I had at least two people who said they would never, multiple people who said they would never eat watermelon publicly, far more others who said they would never eat chicken with their hands publicly. It's okay if you're eating chicken breast. That's an internalized shame that comes from a colonized set of experiences. Right. Right. How do you overcome that? Well, that's part of the work that I do, which is to try to give people pride in in their food and their cultures, because we all have different food cultures. I think it was Mr. Um, Spencer who talked about eating fufu. And was it you? uh, Okay, yeah. So um, I was married for 15 years to a Ghanaian uh, man. Right. And so fufu was a central part of our diet right? Um, and when he didn't have fufu, he had cream of wheat, and he absolutely would use the two fingers and mash it, and that's how he ate. Well, we know that, as as was mentioned by, uh, it may have been uh, Mr. Collins, who said, if you don't use those two fingers, or was that, was who was talking about in North? <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. So, you know, in American society, when my husband and I first met, he said to me, one day I called him and I said, you eating? He said, yeah. And I said, oh, what are you eating? He said, oh, fufu, soup, blah, blah. I said, okay, you don't have to be ashamed to tell me. He said, well, I find in American society that when I explain to people what I eat and how I eat it with my fingers, that they call me uncivilized, right? So those those that shame comes from lack of cultural knowledge and the lack of appreciating one's own culture and one's own cultural knowledge. And rightly so. Um, There are a lot of people for whom my hair um, is shameful, right? Your natural hair that grows out of your head (laughs) is shameful, right? And we have been taught in this country, we have to, Black people have to dress a certain way. You have to talk a certain way. You have to look a certain way. You have to be a certain size. You have to, the list of things that we have to be while being Black are phenomenal, right? Right? So it's no wonder that we have, some of us have these internalized yes. sense of shame. Yes. So how do you get through that? We have to, first of all, for ourselves, embrace who we are and be okay with that, which is an upward battle when society is telling you who you are and what you are is not good enough to be considered a full American citizen.
0: Yes. George, did you have another question? Yeah, actually just a quick comment.
5: Jerry, like John, I love greens, all sorts of greens. Eat them every opportunity I get. But I have to admit that sometimes I actually try shaming some of my friends, jokingly, I I think, about a vegetable which
6: I hate, which most white people love, namely asparagus.
1: (laughs) We
2: couldn't
6: afford asparagus. It was too expensive.
2: Well, I was going to also say, you know, sometimes it depends on how greens are cooked. I have been places and I've had greens that I absolutely hated for two reasons. And this, my mother instilled this in us as young people. You have got to clean your greens correctly.
7: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You George, have
2: to Win- wash Win- them and wash right. them and wash them with salt to separate the grit because there's nothing worse than biting down on some greens and right. you bite into some grit. Right. It can destroy <laughs> the whole pot, you know. But um, some of, it, you know, but I grew up learning how to cook greens and my aunt, my auntie who's departed, uh, gave me a secret. I'll say this very quickly. Um, She said, take a spoon and dip it in baking soda, a wet spoon and dip it in baking soda. And then put it in your pot of greens and you'll see, you'll see it foam up, which will break down uh, the toughness in particular of collard greens in short order, then you don't have to cook them. Um, as long, so that's always been my secret. I'm, I'm available for one more question. though. unfortunately, right. have to uh, run.
6: Spencer, and yes, well- I'll tell you uh, one one quick thing about you know how you get around uh, the uh, shaming thing. And mm-hmm. it come, uh, a lot of us here will recognize uh, the uh, uh, African students from uh, uh, so uh, at Harvey when it was the first bunch that ever arrived, and mm-hmm. so basically I hung out with them a lot. And uh, uh, the, what we did was we, we, when we cooked the food, I learned how to cook all that from Mm -hmm. them. And uh, we would play high life music, you know, Mm -hmm. and we'd be talking and talking and putting in these, all these things. Mm -hmm. And uh, then uh, we would have a a party sometimes and we would invite the people in, you know, I mean the students, you know. and, uh, And, but when we showed them the food, yeah, we always, you know, in Africans, they, you don't have a party without food, right?
2: Yes, yes. <laughs>
6: right, so we would bring out, you know, the egusi and the Insala and all these different mm-hmm. things, and these, uh, you know, the Cliffies love it, the other guys love it, and everything, and it became a status, so we bring it out, ah, uh-uh. no, only a little bit, please, is <laughs> very good, really good and so forth, and and they, it became a very status thing. Yes. Everybody wanted to learn, so yes. that's, a, that's a nice that's story. Right. And that's as far right. as for the greens, two seconds. Mom, collars, grandma, must, uh, uh,
3: turnips. Turnips, I mean, okay. greens, yeah. Yeah. Green.
2: yeah. Yes.
3: Turnips. Um, don't, right. forget, don't forget dandelions. We used to pick Dandelion. dandelions.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, salad. Peter,
3: Peter, Peter, did you have a yeah. quick
0: question, Peter?
2: Yes, Peter. Peter. Go ahead.
3: The, on the on the on the subject of shame, I, I was gonna just tell a little story. I I mentioned when I was with Snick in South Georgia, we ate at the deacon's house and he was an interesting guy. He was a machinist, was a highly skilled machinist, and he kept his job all the way through the depression. He was very proud of that. And he, he loved to tell the story that he you knew a baker, there was a, a white bakery there where he got bread and the the white baker would never give any bread to the poor whites Mm. some starving whites would come behind the bakery but he would always refuse to give them any bread but Mm -hmm. he would give the bread to black people Mm. anyway my friend my deacon he didn't need that but he had his own bread but The whites would then come in the alley behind his house, Mm -hmm. and he fed starving whites Mm -hmm. through the Depression. That's how they got their Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: bread. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It was really
2: fun. Thank you. Thank you all for being here, for sharing those stories. It was wonderful. (laughs) I love hearing other people's stories, and uh, I wish you all well. Okay, thank you, uh, good luck. Thank you for supporting my work.
3: Okay,
0: no, bye bye. Bye. Thank
2: you. Bye bye.
0: That was Professor Psyche Williams Forson from the University of Maryland, College Park. Her new book is titled Eating While Black Food Shaming and Race in America. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple, Podcast, and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.